Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Psalms 102 through 150. So this is the third episode now of Psalms where we get to kind of celebrate the beauty of, of music and poetry uh, from, from antiquity, even though we don't get any of their music. So as I was preparing for, for filming today's episode, a thought came to mind about the power of music. Music is a means whereby many can sow seeds of hope in fields of faith and reap rewards of revelation and motivation to move on and to continue because life is filled with, with wonderful things and difficult things. Music really provides this softening, um, powerful influence in our life to continue to move forward on the covenant path. And if you read the Psalms, all of them, even if you just randomly open up your scriptures to the Psalms and put your finger down and start reading, chances are you're going to find elements that every one of us face in our journey along the covenant path. So you're going to see praise, you're going to see pleading for mercy and forgiveness, you're going to see gratitude, you're going to see love, you're going to see exulting expressions throughout these Psalms. All of these experiences that you and I face as we press forward with a steadfast faith in Christ on that covenant path. So it's th this is a really uh, beautiful section of the scriptures that often gets overlooked. And I get inspired by these people who lived so long ago, but they were so devoted to God, and their praise echoes across the ages. And here we are, thousands of years later, hearing their words and finding consolation and love and God's presence in what they recorded so, so very long ago. And also just to think that many of these were temple hymns sung in the temple of the ancient Israelites as they would worship and sacrifice. It just helps me to feel like I'm brought into that sacred congregation of devotion to God. Wonderful. So let's jump in for our first chapter today. It's in section or chap Psalm, rather, 102. This is, a, this is a psalm that, that starts us off with a feeling of being afflicted, overwhelmed, maybe filled with a sense of anxiety and, and these deep frustrations. And once again, poetry and music, they have a way of, of reaching deeper into our soul and, soul and pulling out some of those deeper human emotions, whether they be, be on the good side or on the difficult side. In this case, you can feel the psalmist and, and the wrestle and the struggle coming off of this page. So we have this, this little subtitle that shows up in the original documents. Now, the italics were provided by, uh, by church leaders, but this little tiny uh, short paragraph where it says, a prayer of the afflicted, that shows up in the original uh, Hebrew documents. So it's like a guidance to help us understand what's the context that evoked this particular psalm. And listen to this, it says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. 
Now, it's interesting the word here in the original Hebrew, it's not simply to listen or to comprehend somebody's words. The word here has a very clear sense of action. So, this petitioner is seeking for God to do something, not simply to acknowledge like, yep, I recognize all the words you said to me, but to have God act on their behalf. Very powerful. Sometimes God turns it around and he wants us to hear. He wants us to hear him. This is now a petitioner saying, I need you, Lord, I need you to act for me. So, you'll notice as we, as we go through the rest of these uh, chapters today, as well as all of the previous ones, that there's, there's a particular lens that you can put on to, to find deeper meaning in every single verse in, this, uh, in these chapters of the Psalms, and it's if you look at them through the, the lens of Jesus Christ, of the Lord and Savior who experienced infinite agonies and infinite joys and visions and everything in between during his mortal uh, sojourn. So, if you read this verse and say, hmm, were there ever any times when the Lord Jesus Christ said to Heavenly Father, hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee, and verse 2, hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble, incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call, answer me speedily. There are multiple points in the Savior's ministry where he, he goes to be alone to commune with, with God to begin his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. The Joseph Smith translation tells us that he spends 40 days in the wilderness to be with God, to commune with him, to hear him, and to be heard by him. You'll notice in Matthew 14, after he found out about the beheading of John, he went by ship into a desert place apart. He wanted to be alone, and subsequently he didn't get his alone time yet because 5,000 men were standing there, and he healed them and then fed them. That's the feeding of the 5,000. And at the end of that evening, then he went up into the mountain alone to pray, to be with God. So, you can see various um, times during his ministry, and then it culminates with his infinite atonement, the events in Gethsemane during the trials and on the cross. And the irony is that even though he was pleading for deliverance and pleading for the cup to pass from him and pleading for God to be with him, there doesn't seem to be an answering voice in any of those instances, which to me provides greater motivation to never, ever turn away from God, even when it feels like we're being forsaken because we're trying to be more like Christ and we're following his example that even if the prayer doesn't get answered the way we maybe wanted it to, it doesn't mean we give up and, and turn our back on God and walk away. We keep pressing forward on that covenant path even when those mists of darkness aren't dispelling right away. This is an interesting psalm. It's structured in such a way that the first 11 verses are the complaint or the concern that the petitioner has, and then they turn from verse 12 to 22 on identifying the core, enduring, truthful aspects of the character of God. So, in all this distress that they have in the first 11 verses, there's this turn to, because here's what I know to be true about God, I can trust 
that there'll be deliverance. Let's just look at a couple of verses here of, of features of God's characteristics. Verse 12, But thou, O Lord, shall endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. Verse 19, For he hath looked down from the height of a sanctuary, from heaven did the Lord behold the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. So even though the petitioner early on has this distress of pain, of suffering, they don't let that overcome their knowledge of the truth of God's characteristics, that he is there forever. He is in his heavenly abode. He looks down, he sees us, he recognizes our need, and he has created the plan of salvation for our benefit and deliverance. Which is a powerful reminder to all of us that God is in his heavens. We are on the earth, which is his footstool. He's above us. He sees us. There's nothing that, that is happening that he's missing or that he's not aware of, and that's a powerful uh, principle to keep in mind as we go through not just the Psalms, not just the Old Testament, not just the scriptures, but as we go through life, because there will be times when you feel absolutely forsaken, like, O God, where art thou, and where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? Why is your hand being stayed? And yet, he, he knows what he's doing, and it's this ult these, these ultimate tests of our trust in him to say, yeah, I'd, I don't see everything, but I know that thou canst see everything, so I'm going to keep my eyes on thee and move forward even though I can't see you all the time and see thy hand. Building on this important perspective of looking for Christ in the Psalms, we should also look for covenants. So throughout all of our lessons, we've talked about the importance of two covenantal mountains, symbolically Mount Moriah, the Abrahamic covenant where God reveals his full trustworthiness that he will deliver his people, he will deliver on their promises. That's the Abrahamic covenant, that God is ultimately trustworthy for all time and all eternity. Then you have the Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai, where God wants us to show our trust in him, and he reveals a set of commandments, a set of obligations or stipulations that we can show our trust. So as you're reading these Psalms, you can look for places where are the enduring, truthful characteristics of God expressed that draw us to be trusting in him, and where do we see evidence where people are being invited to remember God's covenants, that they will be show trust in him. So you have the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant. So you want to, might want to look for those two things. Where do we have expressions of the importance of remembering the God's commands and what happens when people haven't kept those commands and why they suffer, and they can turn to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he will deliver those who turn back to him. So you have that theme as well. Look for Christ and look for his covenants. So you'll notice there are there are a couple of verbs that get used in in an imperative form or a command form throughout the Psalms, where the psalmists are are persuading, inviting, exhorting the group to do things. As as Taylor was saying, it's not a passive belief; it's a very active faith. When you're on the covenant path, it's not a sit back 
and just have God do everything to you, it's an empowering kind of faith that, that builds your agency and your freedom to act and to act at higher and higher levels as you continue to progress along that covenant path. So you'll notice we've already talked about the word hear. So we're asking God to hear us in some of these psalms, and sometimes the psalmist is talking to the crowd to hear. Then we just talked here where if you, if you look at the wording, as we open Psalm 103, it starts with the word bless. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I, I don't know about you, but does that seem a little odd that the psalmist is telling us, bless the Lord? Normally when we think of somebody blessing another person, we, we might think of priesthood blessings, laying on hands on a head and pronouncing a blessing, or blessing them with food, or with money, or with medicine, or, or to succor those, those who are in pain in one, one form or another. It's, it's to give to somebody something that you have that they're in need of. Now stop and think about that for a minute in the perspective of mere mortals referring to God on high. Bless the Lord. Bless the name of the Lord. How in the world can little olds, you and me, bless the Lord in any of those contexts? Um, it's a powerful concept to consider when you're, when you're approaching the throne of grace with the sovereign of the universe who holds worlds without number in his hand, how in the world can I bless him? What could I possibly give to him that he wants, that he doesn't already have completely in his control? I think some of our prophets and apostles have, have spoken about the concept of the only real thing that we have to give him that's uniquely ours is our will, our agency, our heart. It's our very soul. So when you read this, the verse 1 and 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, it's to go to God and give him all that you are, all that you ever hope to be. That's the one thing Elder Maxwell said that is a complete surrender that results in a total victory. You have to surrender yourself in order to receive everything that God has in store for us. So it's a beautiful little, little concept here as we make this list of the different verbs that are going to show up throughout the Psalms. Some lessons ago we talked about how the word bless in its ancient context comes from the same root word uh, from our word blood. So when you think about blessing, all the blessings we have come because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when we were saying bless the Lord or praise him, we're expressing extreme gratitude for his saving blood. I want to look at verse 7 and 8 because it ties into this. It's back into the Mosaic Covenant. It said, it says, he made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. So remember, Mount Sinai Covenant, God reveals what he expects of people to do, the commandments he wants them to live. Then look at verse 8, and this is really important because too often in society we hear people say, yeah, yeah, I'm not into the God of the Old Testament. He's vengeful and angry. 
And it turns out that's a misreading or it's not a full understanding of what God is and how he is preserved and expressed in Scripture. Look at verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. Think about Jesus dying for us. This is the full expression of that. He is slow to anger. His mercy is there abounding in blessing us. We want to bless the Lord. He's chosen to bless us with his blood. And we have full access to that mercy that was promised to us eternally in the Abrahamic covenant as we live the commandments that were revealed on Mount Sinai or to Jesus or to subsequent prophets that give us the updated expectations for how to show trustworthiness to God. Now, on a totally trivial note, totally tangential here, there are many uh, English translations of the Bible, dozens and dozens of versions of the Bible that show up in English, and so it's hard to know exactly uh, where, and depending on which version you're using, but the middle verse in the Bible, there are in many um, editions of the Bible, there are 31,102 verses, and if you use that number, then the middle verse of the Bible, because it's an even number, is actually split between two verses. Well, in certain editions of the English Bible, the middle point verse-wise is Psalm 103, verse 1 and 2, which is an interesting this uh, an interesting middle point. In other editions of the, the English Bible, the middle verse is Psalm 118, verse 8. You can, you can look at the significance. Again, it's tangential. You're not going to base your testimony on things like this, but it's just kind of a, a fun factor to, to consider, hmm, the, the middle verse or middle verses the ideas that are shared in those different places, depending on which version of the Bible you're using, it's, it's kind of a fun reminder to praise the Lord and to trust in God and to bless him in, in the ways that we are capable. Now, let's jump over to, sec or to uh, Psalm 110. This one is a messianic psalm. So, when we use the phrase a messianic, a messianic psalm or a messian messianic chapter, of scripture, what does that mean? So there's a variety of things. You definitely want to be thinking about Jesus Christ. We also can be looking at the ancient kingly context. So in the ancient world, kings would be crowned in the throne room, in the palace, and there would be these psalms of praise and rejoicing that there's, the king is on the throne. Because the idea is that the king has provided or will provide safety, security, and peace so that the kingdom can flourish. Also, that has been secured by overcoming any enemies. If you look at ancient Near Eastern iconography, sometimes you see kings sitting on a throne and they have a footstool where their feet are, and it shows the enemies that have been conquered for the king to come to power. So if you think about this in the context of creation, chaos, God comes and conquers these enemies, this chaos, puts order, and then he sits enthroned in his temple and we sing these praises that we now are at Sabbath or Shabbat. And that is what Christ does. He ultimately puts all enemies at his feet, and he sits enthroned, he wears the kingly crown, he's the anointed king, and now there is Sabbath, Shabbat, there is rest, because all the enemies have been overcome. So these really powerful kingly connections to the ancient world 
sometimes I wish, like, well, the writers when are writing these things, they knew exactly what they're talking about. And they assume that you know what they're talking they about. They didn't stop to explain, like, by the way, here's the massively important cultural context of why we're expressing things this way. So based on what Taylor just said, now with, with fresh ears, listen to verse 1, 2, and 3. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth." It's this, this enthronement scene that has just been painted for you of a God who has might and dominion and knowledge and love and power and all of these things that he didn't he didn't overthrow those enemies for him alone. It's not a kingdom of one. It's a kingdom of kings and queens. It's he's, he's wanting to anoint everyone who is willing to come and be a part of that covenantal congregation with him. The, the imagery is beautiful, and this it's the total opposite of what the devil was doing in the premortal council, trying to take all the glory for himself at our expense, Jesus was doing the total opposite, taking all of the expense so we could have shared glory with him in his kingdom. The, the imagery is just hauntingly beautiful how, how these ancient traditions in, in this ancient world connect us now with our eternal promises if we endure on the covenant path and stick with the king. I'm going to build on the word Christ. Tyler has taught several times that the Hebrew word is Messiah, means anointed, and there are three core individuals in the Bible that are anointed. You have prophets, kings, and priests, and it turns out they all show up in this particular passage. Now, the first one you may not see, and it's a little can be a little confusing. In these ancient coronation rituals, a prophet would speak under divine authority and inspiration to the king and proclaim these future blessings and proclaim his stewardship as king. So imagine, let's start again at verse 1, this is a prophet who has come into the palace to the throne and is speaking to the king. So the prophet is saying, the Lord God says to my Lord the king. So when you have this phrase, the Lord said unto my Lord, which can be a little confusing, the prophet is saying, God has said to the king, sit thou at my right hand. Again, in ancient iconography, uh, kings often would depict themselves sitting literally on the right hand of their God as a symbol that they ruled with authority and authorization and power and might. This is very, very common in the ancient world. So we have the prophet identified, well, we have the prophet there speaking, although the psalmist doesn't tell us the prophet is speaking, but we know it is, speaking to the anointed king, so anointed prophet speaking to anointed king. Now notice what happens here. It's very interesting. Verse 4, the Lord, this is Yahweh because it's all capital letters, uh, it's Jehovah, the Lord hath sworn or made a promise and will not repent. He will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, that's interesting. 
because in the ancient world, the kings were kind of like the military political rulers, and the priests had theological um, or religious rule. Now you have this combination where the king in Israel is king and priest. Very, very interesting. You don't always see that in the ancient Middle East. So here you have all three anointed characters that we, individuals from the Old Testament, those, those uh, roles are all showed up. Prophet, king, and priest, all right here in Psalm 110. Isn't that amazing to get to live on the earth in the dispensation of the fullness of times, when God is sweeping the whole earth with, with news, this glorious news of the gospel, to the point where it's no longer just these three groups that get anointed. Now it's anyone who's willing to keep those covenantal connections with him. So we would extend it out to say who gets anointed today, not just kings and priests, but also queens and priestesses, unheard of in the ancient world as far as I'm aware in, yeah. in the anointings. Your comments suddenly spur my thought. I, It's funny, I didn't think about this before, but our temples give us the opportunity to enact Psalm 110 for us to be enthroned. God puts us on his throne with him because of Christ, and we become kings and queens, priests and priestesses unto the Most High God. The name is a lesson. The word Melchizedek means righteous king, and that's the whole point of the plan of salvation, all the covenants and all of Christ's efforts to save us is to make us like him, kings and queens of righteousness. So you read Psalm 110, you can read from multiple perspectives. You can see Jesus in this psalm. You can see King David or any other ancient Israelite king, or you can think about yourself going to the temple and being enthroned with powers, dominions, and exaltations. Which now leads us into this next phase, which is often called the Hallel Psalms or the Hallel Hymns. Let me write this word up. Go ahead. So the Hallel Hymns in, in the, the Hebrew, Hallel means simply praise. So when you see praise ye the Lord in, in Psalm 111, 112, 113, in multiple places, in fact, I'm going to add the, the word here to our growing list of the, the imperatives, the, the, the verbs, things we're supposed to do with reference to the Lord, hear him, bless him, and praise him. Hallel, the Psalm 113 through 118 are traditionally called the Hallel hymns or the praise hymns. By the way, little side note, if you, if you think of Handel's Messiah, the most famous song in Handel's Messiah is Hallelujah. It's the Hallelujah chorus. Well, all you do is you're adding the J-A-H, also pronounced with a Y sound, Hallel Uyah. So it's praise Yahweh or praise Jehovah. So in that beautiful triumphant song, when you sing Hallelujah, you're basically singing praise Jehovah over and over and over again. We're praising Jehovah. So, the Hallel hymns are beloved among the Jewish people in antiquity and to today in, in many practicing Jewish sects. The, these psalms 
are often recited, read, or I guess in some cases chanted or sung as a whole. So at the time of Christ, you have two schools of thought. You have the school of Shammai and the school of Hallel, and they didn't always agree on everything, and they're always debating. So for instance, the school of Shammai would say that when you sit down to a Passover meal, for instance, because they would sing these at all of their big festival times of the year, (laughs) Feast of the Passover, Feast of the Pentecost, Feast of the Tabernacles, special events, these are the this is the section of their hymn book that they turn to to be triumphant and to praise God. It's a little bit like during Christmas time, there are specific Christmas hymns that we primarily only sing during the month of December. And so all Jews would be so excited about these particular psalms that would be sung at their high holy days. Yeah, so for instance, the school of Shammai would say, okay, you only sing hymn 113 or Psalm 113 before the meal, and then you do the others, 114 through 118, after the meal. And the school of Hallel would say, no, you do 113 and 114 before the meal, and then you do 115 through 118 after the meal. You'll remember, some of you, that in the New Testament account of the Last Supper, as Jesus is is having that experience with his apostles right before leaving to go into Gethsemane, it tells us there that they sang a hymn. Well, chances are pretty good that the hymn they were singing was 115 through 118 in these psalms, and we have to add in the great Hallel, which is Psalm 136, and we'll get to that one in a minute. But let's, let's look more closely at these hymns that have such a a deep significance to the Jewish people in antiquity as well as today. This is one of their their favorite sections of of their hymn book. So, building on what Tyler's saying, as you look at these, think about the Passover context of God saving the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. Just the most miraculous thing where God is trying to demonstrate that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who promised that he would deliver his people. The Passover is the event right before Jesus is crucified and resurrected. We now, every week, reenact the Passover with weekly sacrament. So when you read these, you might look for several things. Where do I see Christ? Where do I see his covenants? Where do I see praise? Where do I see Passover themes? both from the ancient Exodus story as well as for Jesus who goes as the innocent lamb to the slaughter. And how can I read these for my own benefit for sacrament service and sacrament preparation? So these psalms are very powerful and very useful for our spiritual development. And again, I I love that that modern-day perspective, but we also need to picture at least spend a little bit of time in our study here thinking of Jesus sitting at his Last Supper, possibly, if not probably, singing or or chanting or reciting Psalm 113 moments, you know, maybe an hour or two before going into Gethsemane and then going through all of that infinite agony that takes him ultimately to, to Calvary's cross. So, Look at verse 1, praise ye the Lord, praise, O ye servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. So, in a Hebrew Bible, 
you would have the word Hallel three times. Just replace every time you see praise with Hallel. That's, that's the word here. Verse 2, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. So we're going to add that word to our list of things that, that we're doing. We're blessing the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. And then he repeats this idea, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above all the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God who dwelleth on high? It's a rhetorical question. Who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? Who can, who can even come close to comprehending what God comprehends? And yet, how often do you and I get so frustrated at, at him when things don't work out the way we think they should work out or the way we feel like we deserve? The, these, these psalms are really powerful, especially in the context of Christ, you know, on the threshold of his infinite sufferings through the infinite atonement, but also as we consider our own struggles that we go through. Look at verse 7. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust. I immediately think about Jesus who knows that he's about to die and be resurrected from the dust. Imagine the poignancy of him singing these hymns that deal with him and his disciples also singing along with him, and yet they don't fully understand the significance of what they're singing. Oh, so it finishes with the, the phrase yet again, praise ye the Lord, the last words in verse 9, which now leads to, to Psalm 114, talking about Israel being brought out of Egypt back to this Passover. As Jesus is going to institute the, the Passover or the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we're eating Passover meal elements, and he uses the bread, unleavened bread, with the wine on the table for a traditional Passover uh, Seder meal to institute this new tradition, this new ordinance that we get to, as Taylor said, commemorate every single week this event and relive these experiences. And this psalm, again, is emphasizing God's trustworthy attributes. It harkens back to this foundational moment where God proved to the Israelites that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who will always fulfill his covenantal obligations to deliver his people. So if you ever wonder if God will deliver you, you can turn to Psalm 114 and have, remember Jesus is singing this right before he becomes the lamb of deliverance, and it's a reminder that he brought everybody out of Egypt, and he will bring you out of your bondage as well. It's unmistakable, and that's why the scriptures are preserved, that we can trust that God is trustworthy. So let's look at Psalm 115, starting in verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. So did you see that, that contrast there? Our God is in his heavens. Their God, the, the gods of the world, their idols are silver and gold. They're the work of men's hands. Are you seeing this contrast? God made us and men make idols as gods and then worship them. <laughs> 
the, the contrast is stark. Verse 5 through 7 is one of the famous sections of all scripture to go after this, this notion of, of worshiping something that you crafted after your own image or after the image of anything on the earth. Verse 5 says, they have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. Oh, they have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. It's one of the greatest indictments against idol worship that I know, this idea of you have all of those elements, so why are you worshiping something that looks like it has those same body parts, but they don't do what your eyes and hands and ears and mouth and nose do? And I love the fact that God blesses us with those parts of our body to be able to not just see and hear, but to speak and to act and to do things that would help us become more like him. Stop and think about that for a minute. If you want to become more like an idol, if you're worshiping an idol and, and, and you're giving it your devotion and homage, well, how does one become more like an idol? If, if you're idolizing it, how do you do that? Well, in English it works out really nicely because all you have to do is become more idle. Let's just change the spelling a little bit here. It's a decrease of your agency. It's a diminishing of your freedom, of your power to act and think and be and become. That's what idol worship leads to, is laziness, indolence, and sitting back waiting to be acted upon, whereas Jesus Christ and the covenants that he offers us empowers us to not be idle, but to actually become more like the creator of worlds without number, with, with power to see and to hear and to speak, words of increasing wisdom and love and loving kindness and, and forgiveness with people around us. So, I love Psalm 115 because it is so crystal clear on helping us to see in very practical terms what our God is compared to all of the gods that men and women have created for ourselves throughout the ages. And then this conclusion in verse 9, O Israel, instead of trusting in what you have made, trust thou in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. This is such a powerful word, trust. We've said in other lessons that the word trust, truth, and tree are all interrelated. And we can trust what is true, and God is the embodiment of what is true. I want to build on what Tyler's been talking about with idols a bit more. I recently returned from a trip to Egypt, and I've spent a lot of time studying the ancient world, but being in Egypt and being in these massive temples, uh, these Abu Simbel, uh, Kom Ombo, Philae, Edfu, Karnak, Luxor, these places were built up over hundreds and hundreds of years by the ancient Egyptians at the cost of enormous expense. The best resources, the best craftsmen in ancient Egypt were deployed to build temples, and the intention was to glorify the Egyptian gods. 
And these temples were designed to uh, architecturally focus your physical movement and your eyesight into the center spot, the Egyptian temple, Holy of Holies, where the image of the god being worshipped would be housed, an idol. And then every day, the priests would go through a various set of rituals where they would wash and anoint the, the idol, the body of that idol, and they would clothe it, and they would feed it, and they would speak to it. And it just dawned on me, all this time and resource into worshiping things made out of wood and stone, the washing, the anointing, the cleansing, all the care and concern, the feeding, the nourishing, and taking care of. And what do we learn in Genesis chapter 3, chapter 2 and 3? That we are created in God's image. We are his expression. And what does God do for us? He washes us. He clothes us. He endows us. He anoints us. He feeds us. He nourishes us. He encourages us. And I look at what the ancient Egyptians were doing. I, I get their devotion, but it was just misplaced. That they were doing everything for these inert objects and missing the fact that we are the image of God, and he will do all those things for us. Stunning. I learned this from Tyler. When Jesus is on the earth, and he's challenged around paying taxes to Caesar, and he had people present a coin, and he said, whose image is it? And people say, it's Caesar's image. And he said, fine, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and unto God what is God. Since we are the image of God, we are to render ourselves to him, and he will nourish us. He will take care of us. Therefore, we should trust him to do all these things. Why should we spend any time in our lives nourishing or supporting anything that distracts from God? Why should we be like the ancient Egyptians who gave of their best time, talents, and resources in nourishing these inert wooden or gold or stone objects that ultimately could do nothing for them while the poor languished in poverty? So, it was just such a stunning contrast to be there in these splendorous ancient Egyptian temples and realize we are God's temple. We are his image. Let him endow you. Let him clothe you. Let him anoint you. Let him nourish you. Let him help you to flourish and to be fully like him because you are his child. That is such a powerful concept, Taylor, especially when we when we don't just absorb what God has is doing for us, although that list that you just gave, but then try to reflect those very things to those people around us. Uh, the Savior's statement, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. It's that idea of reflecting God's gifts and endowments of, of clothing and power and understanding to other people, which is basically returning it to God who gave us life. I do want to build on that because now that you said it, it opens my mind a bit more. If we are all in the image of God and everybody is a walking temple of God, so instead of spending our time clothing and nourishing these inert objects like the ancient Egyptians did, we should be spending our time doing what God does, giving our time and talents to wash, anoint, and clothe, and nourish, and encourage everyone around us as children of God, because they're the image of God. We should spend as much time and effort as the ancient Egyptians did on their inner idols as 
we should do as much as they did, but we should do it for everyone around us. That's what Jesus asked. And it's interesting how we sometimes miss these really obvious lessons that God has made us to reflect his image and invited us to do his work with those around us. We want to become like God, serve one another. And that's what Jesus' entire life modeled for us. He didn't just say these things, he showed us what it looked like. He went around doing good every day. It was never about what's in it for me. It was always, oh Lord, what would thou have me do? And then he would go and serve and teach and bless. Look at verse 12. The Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. You'll notice that in the covenant path discussion, it's never about just the individual. It's about the collective family. It's about everybody coming together and becoming one in Christ, and he will bless you. You'll notice it didn't say, well, he might choose to bless you. If the roll of the dice comes out just right for you, if you luck out, you might be rewarded. It, these, are, these are absolute statements, but they're also statements that are rooted in line-upon-line line progression along this covenant journey that we're on, on that path. He's also talking about how it's family relationships, it's a community. The God of the Old Testament reveals a theology of relationships, a covenantal community. Now, my culture sometimes tells me I should focus only on myself as an individual, and what I hear from the Bible is in contrast to that culture that tells me that I should be focusing on the community. I should be working on building everybody. Uh, there's a phrase I've heard, think for yourself, act for everyone. And I think that sounds like the gospel, that God wants us to use our agency to benefit those around us, to build the community. Nobody's saved on their own. So for all the benefits of, say, Western culture, which I really deeply appreciate, sometimes there's seeds in that culture that might be slightly off from what God expects, that I shouldn't only be individually focused, that I should make sure I'm focusing on nourishing those around me and building that community of covenantal connection to God. Which I have to just say, from heaven's perspective, uh, there are no foreigners, no strangers. That Heaven doesn't see borders between countries when you look down at the earth from a heavenly perspective. Those are all man-made things. So I love this perspective of not turning out word just to those in your own community or your own nation, but to all of God's children. The message of, of Christ's deliverance and of his mercy is for every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and it's beautiful. Look at, look at verse 15. Ye are blessed of the Lord which made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. So, yeah, we, we've been given this by God, but we need to be very careful in how we treat each other and the earth itself as we, as we move forward, which now brings us to Psalm 116. Notice how it starts. I love 
the Lord. So we can now add that word to our list of things that, that we're doing. I love the Lord. By the way, John Tanner years ago wrote a beautiful uh, song to the words or to the music of Finlandia, which is uh, the song you're familiar with probably as Be Still My Soul, and it's called I Love the Lord. If you look it up, um, it's been performed by the Tabernacle Choir in General Conference before, and it's tied into Nephi's psalm, this idea of I love the Lord because he, because he hath heard my voice and my supplications, because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. If you haven't heard that particular song, uh, highly recommend that you look that up and listen very carefully to the words combined with that beautiful music from Jean Sibelius, Finlandia. It's, it's a hauntingly beautiful journey through, through the highs and the lows of our covenant path journey, all focused on, I love the Lord. It's a, it's a powerful. And again, as I think about Jesus very likely singing this hymn right before he enters the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows what he's going to suffer, and he's willing to fully trust his Father in heaven and to show his love for the Father in heaven to submit to all things. Even when he says in verse 3, the sorrows of death compassed me and the pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Jesus knew he was going to suffer those things. Then call I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yea, our God is merciful. I think about when Jesus is suffering in the garden and on the cross, that he's remembering these truths and is helping him to endure to the end that he might save us all. I just get so much comfort from that. It's amazing, especially because we know kind of the rest of the story of what's going to happen in Gethsemane and through the trials and then on the cross, and it, it, it moves me to picture that statement that Jesus is going to make in a loud voice at uh, about 3 p.m. using Mark's timing when he rises up on the cross and in a loud voice says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated as, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, that we already used back in Psalm 22. In our first episode of the Psalms, notice the wording here, verse 8, for thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And yet, in that moment, he couldn't feel God's presence. He was left utterly alone and feeling forsaken. But you'll notice he didn't turn away from God, even though it felt to him like God had turned away from him in that moment, had forsaken him. There's a beautiful pattern there. I want to be more like, like the Savior. I don't want to be the kind of person who is a fair-weathered friend of heaven, who as long as, as long as I'm happy, as long as I'm prospering, then sure, we're, we're good, but boy, when things get rough, then I'm going to get angry with God and I'm going to shake my fist at heaven and I'm going to make demands. Uh, I don't want to be that kind of a person. I want to be what Elder Maxwell used to refer to as a low-maintenance, high-yield saint. 
one who isn't going to make my decisions based on how I perceive God's goodness to me. I'm just going to move forward to the best of my ability to trust him and to love him regardless of what's going on in life because of what's going on in my heart and that covenant covenantal connection to him. As we think again about Jesus singing this hymn with his disciples before he goes through the awful suffering of the atonement, listen to these words, verse 13, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. That definitely was true when he was on the cross. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I just wonder how Jesus could have sung that without breaking down, knowing what he was about to experience. And he goes on, O Lord, truly I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thy handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. Just so incredible to imagine Jesus singing these words moments before he suffers in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. Now we come to Psalm 117, which once again, this is so tangential and, and not core to the gospel, but if you look at the, the King James Version of the Bible, Psalm 117, um, by some counts, and others would put it in Psalm 118, but it is the central chapter of the Bible, meaning there are equal number of chapters before it as there are after it. It's kind of the, the median or the middle point as far as if you're just counting chapters. Um, two verses long. It happens to be the shortest chapter in the entire Bible, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's written, short. It's written this classic structure. It begins with praise ye, ends with praise ye, and you have this in the middle, this core quality of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Now, when I was a kid and I was in seminary and I had this goal to read scriptures every day, I sometimes would cheat. And like I wanted to read a whole chapter every day. I would go to Psalm 117. And turns out this one psalm summarizes more about God than I can imagine doing in any other small set of words. So it maybe wasn't a bad choice of mine, even though I was I was a bit cheating. I was skipping out of their other things to get my, not get my full chapter reading in. <laughs> I, I love it. Um, and if if you want to consider this as a center point of the Bible, maybe maybe it's not quite as tangential as I made it out to be. Maybe it is a little more center and core if we make it partly a center part of our life. If, if we say, it does not matter what I'm going through in, in mortality, I am going to praise the Lord because he is filled with merciful kindness and he is a God of truth and that truth endureth forever and I'm going to praise him. Maybe if we did keep that more at the center of our life, not just as a center chapter of the Bible, maybe we would find greater happiness. Some of you will remember when President Nelson, in the midst of COVID and there, there was a lot of turmoil, he, he shared a, a brief message on the internet where he, he sent out to all the world, he said, I have a simple solution for many of the ills that we're facing and it's express gratitude, express more thanksgiving and it will 
put more things that are that are difficult into their perspective, and there will be less contention, less disharmony in your relationships. You'll feel more love. Um, I see that here in Psalm 117, which then leads to Psalm 118, which is amazing in its um, symbolism. One of the phrases that's repeated throughout Psalm 118 that I love is, his mercy endureth forever. We have put this word up in the past, it's called hesed, and there's not a clear one word to one word translation from the Hebrew word hesed into English, but here's all the words in English that are bound up in the, the English words bound up in the Hebrew word hesed, mercy, love, kindness, um, enduring love, everlasting love. Um, I could go on and on. There's a number of very interesting words. And notice how this is repeated again and again. His mercy endureth forever. His mercy endureth forever. His mercy endureth forever. If you had any question about the core qualities of the God of the Old Testament, this is it. The Old Testament was written to preserve God's Hesed, his everlasting love that's unbreakable, which is expressed through Abraham's covenant. That love is freely available to you. It is the grace that he so freely offers. So if you ever feel at any point weighed down by the cares of life and wondering, does God know me? Just remember, his enduring eternal quality is Hesed. His love and mercy will always always, always be available. There's nothing anybody can do to destroy God's chesed. We might choose to walk away from it, we might deny it, we might ignore it. It will never destroy it. It is there like the sun, which never goes away. We may not see it, we may close the blinds, we may shut our eyes, but God's chesed is always, always there. So, let's let's look at a couple of these phrases that Taylor refers to of uh, his mercy endureth forever. Look at verse 4. Let them now that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? <sighs> You're moments away from leaving the upper room and going up the Kidron Valley to where the Savior in John 17 is going to offer his intercessory prayer. But right before that prayer, he's going to say to his apostles, basically, this night shall all of you be, you're, you're going to scatter and you're going to leave me alone, but I am not alone because the Father is with me. He, he's right on the threshold of Gethsemane when he says, yeah, you're all going to forsake me, but God is with me. And you're seeing that, that essence throughout these psalms here of the Lord being with me, and if he's with me, what can man do unto me? Uh, verse 7, the Lord taketh my part with them that help me, therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. Or not covenantally connected, connected to me. Connected with me. And then, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. <laughs> That's about as simple of a statement as I know to say, all of the wisdom of the earth can't compete with 
the, the wisdom of God. Put your trust in God. Um, and then you come down, look at verse 14, the Lord is my strength and song and is become my salvation. So, if you picture this from the Savior's perspective, here's Jesus singing these words possibly with his apostles referring to God the Father, but then what happens is through his infinite atonement, Jesus becomes the, the fulfillment of this for all of us. He, the Lord Jehovah, becomes our strength and our song and has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. He's, he's going to embody all of these things that they're singing about him. I really like this one, verse 17. I shall not die, but live, and declare the works of the Lord. So Jesus did die, but he lived. It's a massive plot twist in all of human history. Why did he live? To declare the works of the Lord. The greatest work of the Lord is Jesus Christ and our salvation. It's all summed up right there in that one verse. And then, and then to finish that thought, verse 18, the Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath given me he hath not given me over unto death. So even though Jesus died, he isn't going to be corrupted. He's, he's not going to stay in the grave. He's not given over to death. He's going to burst, burst those bands of death and hell and open the gates of righteousness for everybody to enter in, those, in verse 19 and 20. Beautiful concepts here. Now, I want to skip down to verse 25. Notice it says, save now. The word you might be familiar with in regards of save now is Hosanna. Picture in your mind's eye Jesus riding on a donkey or a mule down the Kidron Valley, past the Gihon Spring, with the whole crowd shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! They're waving palm branches and putting clothing on the ground in front of this, this animal carrying Jesus, and they're shouting to him, Hosanna. They're actually singing this little segment from verse 25 and 26 from one of their favorite messianic psalms, Psalm 118, this, this Hallel hymn that is this forward-looking plea for their coming Messiah. They have messianic expectations, and so they're sitting here singing or chanting to him, Hosanna, and then this, this middle part, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, or Jehovah in this context, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Now pick up verse 26. This is the rest of what they're, they're shouting during that triumphal entry event. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And they say, blessed is the son of David, that we've already talked about when we did 1 Kings chapter 1 in a previous episode. But it is such a beautiful thing to see that they're watching him come down the Kidron Valley and they're seeing him as their Messiah, their, their deliverer, the one who's going to restore the kingdom to, to the house of David, the son of David here. Hosanna, save now. Well, the hauntingly beautiful part of this triumphant hymn 
is that right before you get to the Hosanna part in verse 25, look at verse 22. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. For those of you who like cross-referencing, you could write in your margin next to verse 22, Isaiah 28 verse 16, where Isaiah makes it very clear that this stone that the builders are going to reject actually becomes the chief cornerstone, the main part of the entire building. And so Jesus, who's riding into Jerusalem triumphantly, is going to be utterly rejected and seen as a thing of naught by the chief leaders of the people. And then you'll notice verse 27, right after this, this triumphant part of this hymn that they've been singing to him or chanting to him, verse 27 says, God is the Lord which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords even unto the horns of the altar. So the chief cornerstone that's rejected but becomes the head of the whole building and bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar. Something is going to have to die first. There, there, there's such an amazing connection here to those events in the, the, the last week of the Savior's life, that Palm Sunday event. Notice how it finishes now. Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endureth forever. What an exclamation point for ending that psalm and the ending of these halal hymns. His mercy endureth forever. I love that, that now we're, we're going to add to the praise that we offer to all these things, we're going to exalt thee. <laughs> Some of you are starting to see a nice pattern emerge here on the left side of the board with these words that we'll get to um, shortly. Now, Psalm 119 is not one of the Hallel hymns because that ended in 118 and then we'll come back to 136 in a moment. Psalm 119 is fascinating because remember Psalm 117 was the shortest of all of the uh, chapters in the Bible and Psalm 119 is the longest chapter of all those in the Bible, and if you want a really quick uh, beginning lesson in Hebrew, then you go to Psalm 119 because what it will give you is the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And notice Alpha and Beth. So they simply call, what do you name this list of all these letters? Well, it's the Alpha and Beta, it's the alphabet, and what those are the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet, A and B. Aleph and Beth, and in Greek it's Alpha and Beta, which is probably a little closer, one step closer to our English version of alphabet, but it's rooted back here in this Hebrew. So you get all 22 letters of their alphabet right here, and what you don't get in our, our English translation is that verse 1 through 8 are eight stanzas of poetry, all of which begin with the Hebrew letter Aleph, 
all eight of those lines. And then verse 9 through 16 are eight lines that all begin with the Hebrew word beth. So every single section of Psalm 119 is eight lines that all begin with that particular letter of the alphabet. It's ingenious. It really is. It's, um, it's incredibly difficult to do in any language. Somebody put incredible work into Psalm 119. Unfortunately, in the translation, we lose all of that alliteration of the repeat eight times the 22 letters. We would call this the literary special effects of the Bible. Just like if we watch movies and there's all sorts of cool special effects, sometimes we don't even see them because we're so enthralled in the story, we miss the special effects, uh, but it enhances the experience. And so this writer of Psalms was trying to not only praise God and preserve doctrine, but wanted to do so in a very artistic way, a little bit like how we build temples. Not only are temples true, but we try to make them beautiful. The same thing can happen with scripture, which is literature. This is very beautiful literature. So, uh, just picking out a couple of little things from Psalm 119 that, that might sound familiar to you and that are, I think are really instructive, if you go to verse 33, the, the Hebrew letter he, verse 33 says, "'Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart." Again, this is back to the Mosaic Covenant. You've got to know all the commandments to live the law, the covenant instructions, so you can have full access to the Abrahamic covenant and God's enduring mercy. Love it. Verse 35, make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. It's this idea of teach me to walk in the light. Teach me, teach me. Um, walk with me. Help me to see. Don't just tell me what to do. Give me understanding so that I can then use my agency to, to do the right things for the right reasons because I'm striving to become more like Christ. Many of you might be familiar with the, the phrase that President Boyd K. Packer used to use that many teachers in the church um, see this as almost scriptural, <laughs> this phrase that he used. He says, true doctrine understood changes attitudes and behaviors. A study of the doctrines of the gospel will change behavior quicker than a study of behavior will change behavior. I love that, and it ties in here beautifully of give me understanding, teach me the doctrine, teach me, teach me all of the, the, the beautiful overarching and underlying principles of the gospel which will then empower me. Don't just give me a, a list of rules, don't just teach me the ethics of our religion, teach me to become more like Christ so that I can walk with him in, in a more purpose-filled and in, in a more uh, conscientious way, and I'm more likely to be able to use my agency appropriately at that point. Another concept I wanted to just point out that you will, many of you recognize, comes in, in verse 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. People have put that to music as well. It's a beautiful song. Um, that idea of the Word of God, well, Christ is ultimately the Word. 
John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ is the Word, but then he embodies his teachings, his doctrines, the principles of his gospel in scriptures, in words of the living prophets, and I love it when we can take scriptures and words of the living prophets and let them be a lamp unto my feet. We're on a covenant path. There are a lot of strange roads and forbidden paths. There are a lot of exit ramps on the covenant path, and I love it when we can use his word as a lamp to our feet to guide those, those steps moving forward. In the Come Follow Me reading for this week, uh, we're encouraged to read section uh, Psalm 127 and 128, and these are uh, songs that you would sing as you would ascend up to the temple. So if you think about your own temple worship, you might read these as you're preparing to go to the temple. You might also think about the ancient Israelites. As they would go to the temple, they would sing these. You might imagine Jesus sitting near the temple steps on the way into the temple, that he would have been familiar with these. We're not going to spend a lot of time on these two chapters, but you can look at these and consider, how do these help me in my preparation for the temple? Which now brings us to Psalm 136, the great Hallel. And some of you would say, well, I'm not seeing praise a lot mentioned in here. The reason this one's called the great Hallel is because you basically have 26 acts of divine kindness portrayed here. And you'll notice that – notice how every verse is going to end. For his mercy endureth forever which brings us back to chesed. So, 26 times. Now, we didn't talk about this a few um, psalms ago, but we should mention it right now, that there's been some interesting research done about the word Mormon coming from some Egyptian words. The underlying Egyptian word mor comes from the word for love, and mon seems to come from the word enduring. Well, this is interesting. If you read then the Egyptian word mormon, it is quite plausible it means love enduring or love endures forever. We've taught many times. The name is the lesson. Well, let's think about this. The book of God's love endures forever. If you turn to Moroni chapter 7, one of the greatest speeches of all time on love, it's Mormons dissertation or speech on charity, and he says things like, charity never faileth. If you took that phrase, which is the release study model, and translated it back into Egyptian, you could legitimately write the word Mormon as a translation of the phrase, charity never faileth, or that God's love endures forever. This is the essence of who God is, of why the Bible was preserved, why the Book of Mormon was preserved. And notice right here the great Hallel, Psalm 136, 26 times it's about God's everlasting mercy. His mercy or his love endureth forever. So now this comes in from the Hebrew. If we wanted to translate Psalm 136 into ancient Egyptian, the ending of every one of these verses could legitimately be translated with the word Mormon. Mormon, 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 26 times. So as you think about that phrase, God brought forth the book of his enduring love to set the foundations for the restoration, to declare unto us it's all about covenantal love. 
and he invites us in. It's one of the reasons I love Psalm 136 is because it focuses again and again on the whole message is his mercy, his love. It's about love enduring forever, Mormon. Which is fascinating because at the end of chapter 1 of 1 Nephi in the Book of Mormon, he tells you that he will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen. And then you go to the very last chapter of our Book of Mormon, Moroni chapter 10, and in verse 3 he tells you that when you receive this book that you should ponder how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men down to the time that you shall receive this book. The thing that the scriptures seem to want us to focus on is not God's uh, justice and judgment, even though that's in here, that's a part of his attributes and characteristics, but the emphasis seems to be on his loving kindness and mercy that endures forever. It's his chesed. It's, it shows up all over the place. Now, as we close off these… That's a great connection, by the way. Yeah, these bookends. Nephi begins his record, I'm here to declare God's chesed. Moroni ends the record, says, okay, you have all the writings now, I want you to spend time reflecting on God's chesed. And when you pray to talk to God about it, that's what you ask. Is this all true? Is his chesed true? And the only answer is absolutely yes. Not just true thousands of years ago, thousands of miles away, but God's loving kindness endures forever today, even in the midst of the very, very afflictions that you're going through right now, and the struggles and the heartache and the questions and the doubt and the frustration and the sin, all of it mixed together, God's chesed is active today. Now we finish off these last chapters. The last five psalms are all standalone, powerful um, psalms that begin with, praise ye the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Um, if, you, if you need a pick-me-up, if you're having a down day or a down week or feel like a down year, um, we would invite you to read Psalm 146 very slowly, Psalm 147, 48, 49, and 50, and ask the Lord to show you his chesed in your life, to see where, where his hand has blessed you. These are, these are some of the sweetest words you're going to get in Scripture, and literally we could start in 146 right now and just read verse by verse, by verse, all the way to the end of 150, and it's a powerful uh, devotional experience for people to feel more connected with God. Um, as, we, as we end, I want you to take one more look back at the list we have over here, these signs of what we are supposed to do based on the Psalms these verbs, these imperatives, these are all things we've been invited to do. And I, I threw this one in here because of what Taylor was talking about, the anointing of those idols, what they did to, to their gods. I, I, so I cheated and put that one in the list, even though it's not one of th those mentioned in the Psalms. You'll notice these were all things that we're supposed to do to God or for God, and it doesn't take a genius to look at that list and say, hmm, who taught us how to do that? It was Jesus, the Christ, who taught us what that looks like 
in your relationship with God, but at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, we love him because he first loved us. Everything on this list are things that the Lord God of the universe promises to give us as our God if we'll be his people, and you'll notice we're doing the same things, we're just doing it from different perspectives in that covenant connection. God is the one who perfectly hears. God is the one who knows how to infinitely and perfectly bless and praise us and, and make us blessed and trusts us and anoints us and loves us and will one day exalt us. So, as we go through the rest of today, the rest of this week, the rest of this year, let us keep practicing in our efforts to do those things which are godly things. Let's practice line upon line on this covenant journey that we're on, this covenant path to become more like God in doing these things, not just reflected heavenward, but reflected outward to those around us. As we conclude our lessons on the Psalms, my family and I would like to share with you one of our favorite Psalms. It's a beautiful song written by Claudia Bigler called Invocation, and it helps us feel connected with the Lord. We hope that you will feel his presence and of his care for you. Know that you're loved.
Thank you.